wasn't sure whether to interrupt me or not. And I said, yeah, interrupt me. I'm just looking at this piece of paper. It's got nothing to do with the sermon. It's a joke, you know, and I'm trying to figure out, should I share this or not? Decisions, decisions. But it is Valentine's Day and people have been talking about love and romance. So I'll go ahead and share it and then we'll just move quickly on to the Word of God. Uh, A prince was put under a spell so that he could speak only one word each year. If he didn't speak for two years, the following year he could speak two words and so on. Now one day he fell in love with a beautiful lady. He refrained from speaking for two whole years so he could call her my darling. But then he waited to tell her he loved her. Well, he wanted to tell her he loved her, so he waited three more years. At the end of these five years, he wanted to ask her to marry him, so he waited another four years. Finally, as the ninth year of silence ended, he led the lady to the most romantic place in the kingdom and said, My darling, I love you. Will you marry me? And the lady said, pardon? (laughs) Decisions, decisions. I don't know. Well, now to more serious things. We're in Nehemiah chapter 10. You can turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. And we looked at chapter 9 and we saw that chapter 9 was essentially just one long, very long Prayer, And when we examine that chapter, we learned a little bit about the nature of prayer. We also learned about the nature of true repentance. And then that chapter, chapter 9, ends with these words. I'm going to actually go back to chapter, I mean, verse 36 in chapter 9. Here's how this long prayer ends. Behold. We are slaves this day in the land that you have gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on sealed document are the names of the princess and our Levites and our priests. So after that long prayer, basically it ends with a because of all this, they're they're having a because of all this moment. Have you ever had a because of all this moment? It's one of those moments where you realize where you are today. And you look back at your past decisions, even the decisions that people made before you. And you look at where you are and you begin to realize where I am today. I don't like this. This is misery. I am in great distress based on the decisions that I've been making. And they said because of our sins. And so they're at this place where they realize we have to make changes in order to, for things to get any better. Now they're seeking the favor of God, the divine favor of God. 
But they are realizing that because of all this, because of my unwise decisions, I have messed up my life. And God has laid things out. And in order for me to get back in into this mode of life where I receive the blessing side of God's love instead of the curse side of God's love, I have to make some changes because of all this. And sometimes we make unwise decisions and we are then taken advantage of. And look at this. These people are back in the land. They are the remnant. But things still aren't the same. They're doing a a lot better than when they were under the leadership of Zerubbabel when they first returned. It's been about 140 years maybe now. So they're doing a lot better, but they are still feeling the consequences of their sin. They're working hard. They got there. They planted the crops. Of course, they built the wall. They built their homes. They got a town going. They have produce and revenue going. But they don't get all of the work of their hands, not that fruit. A lot of it goes to the kings that they are subject to and they're subject to them because of their sins, because of unwise choices, because of walking away from God. And so they're having one of these because of all this moments. I've had some because of all this moments where I realize, you know, I can either keep living in misery or I have to make some changes. And so that's where they are and they're ready to make some changes. And we looked at a few aspects of true repentance and that's what they're experiencing right now. And that's what we're going to read about in chapter 10 because they are so serious now about their change. They so want to move on out of this bad place that they are willing to make a covenant and even sign their names to it. I mean, this is big stuff. But before I read this chapter, because it's about covenant, I want to explain a few things about covenant and what is actually happening here. They're, they're desiring to enter into a covenant with God. So let's think about covenant. A, a biblical covenant is, is a pledge. It's a promise. It's an agreement that two parties enter into. And it can be on a more of a human level. Uh, with just two people. I mean, we have deeds with our homes and different things with property. And so even today we have covenants that we can enter into, signed agreements, legal agreements. But on a, a biblical level or a higher spiritual level, a uh, biblical covenant is more made, especially when we look at the Middle Eastern concept of it. It is made by two parties, but the one that initiates is usually a, a king or some kind of sovereign. And so the sovereign initiates a covenant because he can and he sets the stipulations um, the rules that this covenant will operate by because he's sovereign and he can do that he's the ruler and then of course it includes the other parties and when these stipulations are set uh, there are blessings and curses there are curses if you do not abide by these stipulations and there there are benefits and blessings if you do so he sets forth those and that's kind of the promise of the covenant maker. And so there are conditions to covenants. There are conditions to biblical covenants. So in essence, the sovereign sets the terms. It's based on stipulations that have within it blessings and curses, depending on the other party's response. Now we find this, um, for instance, in the garden before the fall. So it was a covenant that man entered into. My God, some scholars call this a covenant of works. What do we find the very first few chapters of Genesis? God is saying, I'm, I'm going to bless you. Bless you, be fruitful, multiply all that I have created. You can have it all. It's all at your, 
at your hands. I want you to take dominion over it and rule it as a reflection of my image. So it's all blessings. But then there was a stipulation to this, and that is he sets the tree right in the middle of the garden and says, but you can eat of any other, but you may not eat of this tree or the stipulation was death. You shall surely die. So there's a, a covenant that is between man and God. You have the sovereign that initiated it. You have the blessings and you have the curse. And it depended on the condition of man's obedience or disobedience. Well, Adam and Eve failed. And therefore, they were faced with the promise of God that they're going to face death, that they're going to be cursed. And that's exactly what happened. They were cursed with toil. Now the work is by the sweat of your brow. Now giving birth involves painful labor. And death is, is on the horizon. Death is sure. Death is certain. You're not going to live eternally anymore. And so that part of the, 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 the curse was enacted. But then God almost does something unexpected in this same scene in the midst of Dishing out the curses for the stipulation of the broken covenant. He also says, but from the woman is going to come a seed. There's going to be a person, a man born into this world. And he is going to save mankind from the curse. He's going to save mankind from the from the death and from the consequences of sin and from the destruction and from the toil and the labor, he's going to give them rest and and blessing will be poured out abundantly upon mankind because of this one person that's going to come into the world. That was God's promise. And so in the midst of bless of curses for a broken covenant, you have another covenant, a covenant of what we might call covenant of grace, where God says, I'm going to do this. I am promising you this Messiah will come and crush the head of the serpent put to death evil and undo the curse. So we have this covenant of grace, this promise from God. That's how God responded. And then we have subsequent covenants in the Bible. And each one just reveals more of God's nature and more of how the covenant is actually going to happen in detail. You have Noah. And the flood, and then we have the rainbow as a sign of a covenant, which is God saying, God offering and promising stability. Stability for you to reestablish yourself. And he says the same words to Noah, go out and be fruitful, multiply. So there's that promise of stability. And then you have Abraham in that covenant. A little more detail. He chooses Abraham sovereignly to be the father of this covenant. And through him, he's going to be blessed. He's going to have many, many children. He's also promised a land and to be the father of many nations. So that the details of this covenant of grace and how God's going to bring the Messiah into the world are just unfolding. And then you have the Mosaic covenant, which I'll touch on in, in very shortly, because that's what this covenant in this context is all about. And after that, you have the Davidic covenant. Whereby God promises David, you'll always have a king on the throne. Your line is going to rule forever and ever and ever. There will not be a time when you do not have a king on the throne. And of course, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then we have the new covenant, the covenant that we are under, where all of the promises that God made are fulfilled and ratified in the perfect life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have been given a new heart. 
and so forth. So all of these reveal the nature of God and how this promise and this covenant of grace is unfolding. They're essentially uh, one covenant, really, and it's all fulfilled in Christ. But we just get a little more information in each. But they're between two parties. So covenants are relational. We want to think about a covenant as a relational thing in this context between man and God. It's a relationship. And it's also conditional. There are conditions to a covenant. People have to do their part. And you say, but wait a minute, I've been taught that the covenant of grace, the whole purpose is that it's unconditional. And that doesn't depend on me, but it depends on God. So how can you say there are conditions? Is it, doesn't grace mean that you're getting something that you don't deserve? That you didn't even earn? Well, it does. God does save us, even though we're stuck and we're unable to keep our end. But how was this covenant made? This covenant was made on the condition of Christ living perfectly, because we can't. It was made on the condition of the man Christ taking our punishment, bearing the weight of our sin. So the covenant of grace, it's relational, but it's also on the condition that Christ, God became man. And we looked at this at Christmas. God with us. He became man to do what we couldn't do and what we can't do. And it's because he did that, that God can be so gracious to us. It's on the condition of Christ. So grace comes through Christ and all these promises were met in the triune God through Jesus Christ. So therefore, we can receive the grace also like the unconditional love. We love that term. It's so warm and comforting to think about God's unconditional love. But there's a condition to God's unconditional love. The condition is that he can love us based on what Christ did for us. If Christ had not done that, then there would not be unconditional love. So it's on the condition that Christ paid for our sins. Now, the reason I'm explaining all this and is because Israel's about to enter into a covenant. We want to understand what it means to them, what they're doing, and also what does it mean to us? You know, we, we read about these these things. We read about Israel entering into a covenant and based on the history, what I asked the question, wait a minute, what are you thinking? You just prayed this long prayer, you just told on yourself of how incredibly unfaithful you are and how incredibly faithful God is. And basically what you're saying is it's in your blood to be covenant breakers. You've never been faithful for any length of time. And yet you're going to turn around and enter into another covenant and sign your name to it. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Are you just doomed for failure? So I I begin reading this and, and I think, is this good or bad? Should I be happy or not? So we have to understand covenant and we have to understand the context of what is going on here. Are they setting themselves up for failure once again? Well, what we want to keep in mind, and we'll spend about two weeks in this chapter, is uh, what does it mean to live in covenant with God? Now, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is it, is it good to make pledges? Is it good to... To sign our name or make commitments to God in any kind of way. A lot of times, and this is the Mosaic Covenant, by the way, that they're in. Um, that they're referring to. The law of God. That's the changes. When I read the chapter, you'll see the changes that they, they're going to make. This is the Mosaic Covenant. 
And a lot of times we think about the Mosaic Covenant as bad because it's all these stipulations. You know, we read Leviticus and Deuteronomy, always one rule after another, after another, after another. And it can't be good to enter into a covenant to say, yeah, I'm going to obey these things. But in reality, what they're doing is they're not forsaking the covenant of grace to enter into a covenant of works. So when we think about making commitments based on our obedience, based on walking according to the way of the Lord, we want to make sure that we understand that they are not abandoning the covenant of grace. They're not entering into a covenant of works because then that would be a step in the wrong direction. The covenant of grace, they are already in it. So God's forgiveness is still there. Uh, God's acceptance is. Is still there. So this isn't a, a bad move. So the covenant of grace came first. And in, in essence is bigger than the law of Moses. If you will. It's the, it's the foundation for the law of Moses. The covenant of grace came first. The promise to Abraham. Before the law was ever even given. So they're not abandoning that. And I think it's important for us to understand that. Because if it's a covenant of works, if they're going to ba- if they're saying, look, we're going to base our relationship with God on our obedience, that's a mistake. Because then they're going to become Pharisees and we know what Jesus thinks about the Pharisees and work salvation. But on the other side is that we can't just say, well, the law is no good. It's dangerous. We should never have anything to do with it because all it does is condemn us. And that's an antinomial Nomialism, where, you know, we just live by grace. The law has no effect. It doesn't matter what we do because it's a life of grace. Well, we can't go there either because God's law is a very reflection of his holy character. It's, it's a very personal relation thing, relational thing. It's not just a, a book of rules. It's a book of revelation of the character of God. So we can't do that either. So we want to understand this. The moral law is given by a moral, a moral God. And even back in Genesis and creation, basically, he's saying, I created all this. I'm a moral God. So there are there are moral principles in the universe. And when you break one of those, you're going to be judged. That's the way life works. So it's personal and it is relational. And even the law is about the very character of God. So here's what I mean by saying that the covenant of grace was already there before the law. Exodus 2 Verses 23 through 25 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So God is delivering them. He's rescuing them. He's Saving them. He's having mercy on them. He's delivering them out of the wicked times and the wicked world and the wicked people that they live with. And he's bringing them into this land of rest that was promised already promised to Abraham. So he's not rescuing them because they're going to obey the law of Moses. The law of Moses hasn't been given yet. So it's, it's a gracious thing. They're already saved, so to speak. In other words, they're already saved. In this covenant. So the grace comes first. It's not that the law saves them. It's not that that's what God established the law to do. So why is the law important? Why would they commit themselves to the law then? Because the law determines uh, what kind of lives we're going to live. 
The law determines if we're going to live blessed lives or cursed lives. If we're going to live in harmony with this moral God who created moral order. Or if we're going to go against it our whole lives and therefore suffer, uh, live in the curse side of the, the, of the economy of God. So the law is important because it teaches us what it means to even be in a covenant of grace. What is a covenant of grace? Does it mean we just get to get get to do anything we want? What does it look like for us to live in gratitude and adoration of this God who has been so merciful to us to that to understand that we go to the law. The law tells us how to live rightly, how to please God with our lives. It tells us how to live in grace in a covenant relationship. So I would say. If we ask the question, are they about to set themselves up for failure or is what they're doing? Are these changes they're making? Are these commitments really good? I'd say, yeah, this is a good thing. It's a good thing that they are willing to rededicate their lives and make a covenant. So now we're going to go ahead and read the passage with that behind us and kind of see why for the next week or two this is a good thing. But first... As Old Testament passages often do, it starts out with a lot of names. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the first 27 verses trying to show how well I can pronounce these names because I honestly don't know the proper pronunciation. I just kind of make an educated guess. But anyway, we'll at least look at verse one on the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of And it goes on and on and on. Then in verse 8, you find out there are also priests listed. And in 9, you also see the Levites. There are names of Levites listed on this document. And then verse 14 goes down to the chiefs of the people. So they, they sign this document. This is a big thing. They are very serious about what they're doing. They didn't just um, come up with this and sign their names to a napkin. This is an official document and it is sealed. Now, when we look at those names, if you were to read those names, what's the first thing you notice about those names? First thing I notice about them is they're not American. You know, I mean, where's the Jims and the Bobs and the Johns and the Bows? You don't find them. But what's the second thing we would notice is that who's first on the list? Nehemiah. See, Nehemiah is the leader. And he puts his name first on it. He leads and he's leading by example. And then we see the priests. The priests are like the pastors of the day. They are the ministers. Uh, they are mediators bringing God to man and man to God through the sacrifices. So they're like the pastors of the day, uh, the, Le- the priests. Then we see the Levites and they are the temple servants that make the ministry possible by serving in the temple. In a variety of ways, they're kind of like the, you might say, the deacons of the day. They're very powerful servants. And then you see the chiefs are also listed. And these are just the heads of the clans, the heads of the families, generations on the way, all the way down to the smallest baby. So basically, these are the people you have, the pastors, the deacons, and then the church members. All are present. Everybody is represented in this covenant. And they're signing it. So now we're going to read exactly what they're getting themselves up into. These are the changes that they see that they need to make and they're willing to make and they're willing to sign their name to a document. I'm going to go ahead and read from 28 all the way to 39. 
The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. According to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all our fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So that is what they are covenanting to do. So in essence, what's happening is that they're taking personal responsibility for their sins they are owning their faith. They are owning their identity as the people of God and they're putting God back in the center of everything. All these things that previously they walked away from and suffered the consequences and felt the pain and the sting of being out of harmony with the reality of God. And they're saying basically we are yours God. Our families are yours. Our jobs are yours. My money is yours. The work of my hand. Everything I produce. Our marriages. The joy of our hearts. Everything. Our crops. Our livestock. Our worship. God, it's all yours. It's all yours. Now, why is this a good idea? Or are they just setting themselves up for failure because they're making promises that historically they cannot keep? I would say it's a good idea, again, because the grace is still there. 
but also because the law was still there. And no matter who we are, we don't escape the law because the law is a reflection of what's truly right and good and moral, which is a reflection of God. And it's reality. If God is real, then the moral order that he established is real. His law is real. There are ways that things work and there are ways that they're just not going to work. And so this is a good idea because they have recognized in seeking God that God's ways are good. They have not been living according to them. And in order to receive the blessing, that's where they have to walk. It's still within the foundation of a covenant of grace. They're not entering into a a life of failure and condemnation, they're still within the law of God, are what? The law of sacrifices. There's provision to be forgiven for failures. That's a part of the covenant of grace. And even with teaching us to pray in the New Testament, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's built failure. God knows. That's why he sent Christ. God knows we're going to fail. Christ is the one who erases that. They're not entering into a covenant of works. They're recognizing how good God's law is and how the the, the blessings flow from that kind of living and that kind of thinking. So this is a good thing. And to commit ourselves to what's real and good and even slip or fail or wane is better than to not try at all or better to just to continue to live in disobedience. So that is why these, the, the, the whole nation is in a good place to pledge. And this is not a new covenant, by the way. They are recommitting themselves to the Mosaic covenant. As you, I read the chapter, you recognize what they're doing. That, that's already been there. God didn't change. The law didn't change. They walked away from it. Now they're saying, uh, that's too painful. It's too destructive. Now, you know, I'm working hard. My life is doing a lot better. But even my produce, I don't even get it. And I don't even get to. It's less to give to God as well for the household of the Lord. So they're they're feeling the strain of that. And they're wanting to move from the curse side of the promise and the covenant to the blessing side. We can live in the curse side of the promise. And that's. When we suffer from our own unwise choices, the consequences of our sin. We can try to do that sooner or later. Hopefully we will come to our senses and realize uh, something right with this picture. I need to get back on board with God. I've tried it my way. And it's not working. Life on the curse side is not fun. Life on the blessing side is hard, too, because we have to exercise self-control. And discipline. So it's not a walk in the park, but all your hard work, rather than destroying you, benefits you. You get something for your return. So they want to walk on the blessing side. It takes you places. You're not being taken advantage of anymore. You have more control where your resources, your money, your time, your thoughts go. It's not sinking you in bondage and poverty and sickness and death. So they're pledging to make these specific changes in their lives and now live a life that pleases God. And all along they were meant to be a people that told the story of God. They were meant to be a people by God's grace that will receive his favor and his blessing so that all the nations will know how glorious God is. We have that same calling on us as well. So they come together, they commit themselves to do life with each other. 
to do life with God. And that's what it means to live in covenant. In that kind of relationship. We're willing to change, they're saying. We're willing to live right. And to look out for one another. And to care for the household of God. And that's the main emphasis of that passage. They, what was very obvious is that they were neglecting the ministry. They were neglecting the household of God. And we will get into that at another time. So the covenant obligations are there. I want to just talk about one obligation that we'll see this morning. And we'll cover the rest another time. But here's, in essence, one of the categories that they are willing to bring change to is to walk in obedience to what they read in God's word. They had been neglecting God's word. Therefore, they weren't walking in obedience to it. So look at verse 29. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So they are so ready for change that in essence, what they're, they're willing to enter into this covenant that does have the curse and the blessing. So what they are in essence are saying is that God... I'm going to read your word now and commit myself to you to your word. But if you ever see me starting to stray again, if you ever see me slacking off, I invite you, I implore you to discipline me, to bring me back. I don't ever want to go in this place again. They are inviting God's judgment. They are inviting a, a God's loving discipline, I guess, would be a, a better word to say. It. They're inviting God's loving discipline into their hearts. That's how serious they are about getting their lives straight and seeing their need for change. Please correct us, God. Do whatever it takes to keep us from straying from you. I hope that's our prayer. I know it's my prayer. I know it's the prayer of our leadership of this church. God, never let us stray. Always keep us in your grace. Never let us stray. Because we know the proneness of our own hearts. That they are prone to wander. So they're saying, we'll read our word. But Lord, we'll, we'll read your Lord. But Lord, if you're, I'm sorry, we'll read your word. But Lord, if we slip, we give you permission to get us. And to bring us back. We want to know who you are. We want to read your word. Know what's right. We want to know what's wrong. And we want to live according to it. And they're talking about Scripture. What is Scripture? It's the highest authority of the land. I just read in the news this morning, I don't know if it was yesterday or last night, one of our Supreme Court justices, Scalia, Justice Scalia died. He was one of the conservative. But but the highest authority for the Christian is the Word of God. It's the supreme authority for us. We are to test absolutely everything by the Word of God. And I just want to close with with this thought. The law is our friend. The law is our friend. The law reflects the very nature of God. If if it's like God saying, here's who I am. By giving us the law. And a lot of times we look at the law as our enemy. The law is our friend. The law is our path to to God's blessing. It's, it's a path to pleasing God, which means living a blessed life, whether it includes suffering for Christ or not. 
And I know as an evangelical Bible believing church, if somebody came in here and, and tried to tell us God's word is it's outdated, it's it's just myths. You can't trust it. it. It's not authoritative. We get pretty upset because we believe in the authority and the inerrancy of God's word. But how thoroughly do we believe in it? Because there are areas, do we believe in the supremacy of God's word, even in the areas that we don't like? Like in the areas where God talks about sexual purity and here we are saturated in a, uh, a culture of sexual promiscuity and it bears down on us. Is that one of those parts of God's word and the supremacy and authority that we might compromise or, or not get so upset about or divorce where God speaks plainly about it? And we also are experiencing a culture of divorce. Or just saying what we should say, what the scripture tells us, what we should do and how we should use our words. And yet in a culture of political correctness, in a culture that says you can't say this, how much authority does God's word have? How supreme is it in all of our lives? It's a challenge because there are parts of the Bible that we struggle with. There are parts of the Bible that are hard for us. How reliable is it? We were worshiping the Lord and it became, as I was thinking about the message. If we say God is our friend, then God's word is our friend. God's law is our friend, not our enemy. And so we want to, in our love for God, embrace his word. Because that's what covenant relationship is. In order for us. To live out a covenant that God has for us. In order to know him and what he says, we have to study his word, read it, and we have to obey it. We have to walk in it. That's what the covenant of grace is. So be encouraged this morning and, and be challenged and let us embrace this goodness of God's covenant life and anticipate the rest of his words in this chapter to come. May God bless the preaching of his word.